0: Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Tearing Down Walls. Today, we're talking about a topic that's been dominating the news and many of our thoughts these days Ukraine. It's been over a month since Russian forces launched a full scale invasion of Ukraine. The Office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights says as of March twenty second, close to 1,000 civilians have been killed and almost 1,600 have been injured, although officials believe, quote, the actual figures are considerably higher. Cities have been destroyed and millions of people in Ukraine have fled or been displaced. Today we'll hear from some of those Ukrainians as well as from people who are providing aid here in Germany. We'll also hear analysis from a professor at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station, WNHU. But first, we'll start the show as we usually do from the perspective of a DJ. This is, of course, a rapidly developing situation, so we want to note that these interviews were recorded on March 22nd and March 23rd. Joining me now is Yuri Gershi. He is a musician and author who was born in Ukraine, but has lived in Berlin since 1995. Thanks for being here. Hello. So Yuri, you have been processing and writing about what's going on in these installments of journal entries for the German newspaper Der Tagesspiegel. What is on your mind today?
2: Well, it's been basically more or less the same for the last three, four weeks. Of course, what's been happening in Ukraine on all possible levels, because I have so many friends there and still my family members and um, I've been following everyone, trying to keep in touch, you know, as much as it's possible. And uh, some people I can't reach for for days already and I'm, I've been worrying and, uh, you know, trying as much as I can to help on, again, all possible levels with uh, sharing the information, writing it and explaining it to Germans, for example. Yeah, I have this unique perspective on, of being in between these two countries, actually.
1: And you've written very vividly in these entries for Der Tagesspiegel, for example, seeing footage of your hometown being devastated by Russian bombs and also just the trauma of being inundated with such images right now. What have you been doing to cope with what you're seeing and hearing every day?
2: I would say I haven't found anything that would heal me. Maybe music does.
1: Yeah, I noticed over the past weeks you've put out these calls on your Facebook page for people to share their favorite Ukrainian love song or song about a Ukrainian town. Is there any music that's provided comfort to you?
2: Well, you know, actually, it's... I don't know how it sounds, but I've been... Like, the music that's been on my mind for the last two weeks is an album... I recorded myself, well, not solely by myself, but uh, with my dear friend and uh, probably the best-known Ukrainian poet and writer Serhiy Zhadan. We recorded it in Kharkiv, in our hometown, and um, it was me making most of the music, and uh, Serhiy, who chose the lyrics uh, that are the texts of Ukrainian poets that used to live in Kharkiv 100 years ago, Uh, more or less, well, 90 years ago in a very specific place. It was a residence. It was a home for Ukrainian writers. Uh, It's called the House of Slovo, the House of Word. Uh, And it was built, I think, 1929. They moved in. And in the 30s, most of these people were prosecuted by Stalin. Mm. And uh, so this is a devastating page of Ukrainian cultural history. And uh, we recorded this album, which is basically a pop album, based on these texts. And Serhii was reciting them, there was a children choir who sang with us and the choruses. And, um, you know, And now I've been watching how this house was shelled. The studio where we recorded isn't there anymore. Like it's like a bomb fell right next to it and it's destroyed. Most of the children from the choir had to flee. The house of one of the girls has been completely destroyed. They had to be saved from the bomb shelter or under the under the house from the cellar. So these are devastating stories, and uh, the music is still there and it's so fresh, you know. It's not, and it's suddenly it gets all this kind of new aspects and new dimensions I haven't even thought of and this poetry you know rediscovered after so many years and these times when Ukrainian writers and poets were basically shot and persecuted and 90 years later we're actually seeing history repeating it's a variation but it's pretty much the same but it's much more brutal than it was and it was really brutal back then in the 30s but now it's not just you know not people of culture it's like everyone this is this is crazy
1: are there any lyrics in particular that have really resonated with you as you've re-listened in the past weeks then i
2: probably should mention another uh, another work and another song because I recorded an album with uh, school children in the gray area of Donbas in the east of Ukraine. And uh, we recorded a song called The War. And uh, it wasn't like I was more into writing stuff about the places where we've been together in Donbas and uh, two girls from Papasna, which has been shelled for the last three weeks daily said we need a song about war and we recorded this song and uh, the chorus they wrote the lyrics alone like I didn't interfere and I didn't change a word and the chorus is uh, there's a war in Ukraine and it's stealing lives it's easy but you know I was thinking about that because back then it's the war that has been going on for eight years it was just Donbass now it's it came to every, every town in Ukraine. And this is terrible. I think now while this song has been played a lot. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, so many Ukrainians can relate to it. And I'm not sure this was the way we wanted it to be when we recorded it, you know.
1: So Yuri, how do you feel about the response coming out of Germany so far, which is, of course, a place you've called home for about 27 years?
2: On political level, I think a lot could be, a lot more could be done. On social level, on personal level, I am overwhelmed by what people have been doing so far. The solidarity Ukrainians see here is enormous (laughs) from people around me, like, I feel it in my friend circle, like, and I'm, I'm talking about, not only about Ukrainian diaspora, but more about the, you know, Germans and around us, people who actually never, were never into Ukrainian culture, didn't have many Ukrainian friends, they're just touched by by what they see and by this news, and uh, it's, you know, I would even say it's wonderful, but when I think what price Ukraine is paying for that, what's the reason for that? It's actually, it's heartbreaking.
1: And that's another thing you've reflected on, that yes, your music is getting this renewed interest by German media, but at what price? And why did it take until this point to get that recognition? And you have been interviewed by a lot of journalists over the past few weeks. I'm wondering, what are we not asking that you wish we
2: would? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think everything has been asked, but this is because I've been asked so many questions recently. Um, There is one thing, you know, like that's been on my mind for a couple of days because so many people here talk about, about peace and peace seems like an abstract concept to me. And, you know, I think when people who are not Ukrainian or live in Ukraine talk about the end of the war... It's usually, well, they see peace. Ukrainians, in, you know, like as the end of this war. Ukrainians see their victory as the end of the war. And this is very important. And uh, this war can end only in one case, only when Ukrainian wins. And uh, I think it's important to understand. And it will win. There's, I think there is no choice. There's no other option.
1: Yuri Gorshi is a musician based in Berlin. Thank you for taking the time today.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Tearing, Tearing Down, Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life.
1: You're listening to Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. And on today's show, we're talking about Ukraine. And I'm joined now by our show's co producer, Monica Muller Kroll. Hey, Monica. Hi, Sylvia. Monica, in mid-March, you met up with a couple from Kiev who were here in Berlin, and they'd actually come here on vacation, right, just before Russian President Vladimir Putin launched this full-scale invasion of Ukraine.
3: That's right. I talked with Anastasia. She's 27 years old and Pasha. He's 22. And they told me that they felt quite anxious living in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, back in February and decided to take a break. So they flew to Berlin on February 23rd.
4: We were just thinking that maybe we would just go to Berlin for a few weeks and just um, you know because it really was very stressful to stay because everybody was talking about war and everything you could hear was war and war and war.
2: My family they didn't uh, think it was coming they thought that I'm like too hysterical about that a little bit so they, they told me Like, you should go, like, uh, and then come back and it's going to be okay. And so I did. But when I came, I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to come back. I I hope so, like, we do it in the nearest future.
3: Of course, now they have no idea when they will be able to safely return to Kiev. And I was really touched uh, when they described their home city.
2: To be honest, uh, I love Kyiv more than any place that I've been to. Kyiv, the crush.
4: Very different from all of the other cities in Ukraine. That's just something you have to understand. It's um, it is very similar to Berlin. So that's why a lot of people from Kyiv came to Berlin as soon as this started, and so you could find all kind of friends here um, mm-hmm. now. But um, in Kyiv, you just have a lot of things to do, and it's it's very free, and it's very. Uh, modern and and people are beautiful and um, there's a lot of parties you could go to and Kiev is a is a techno capital I would say because mm-hmm. uh, you know our clubs are amazing and there's so many cultural things going on and uh, so many projects and so many beautiful things it's just just a lot of things to do.
3: When I talked with them about the current situation in Ukraine, they echoed the wish of many Ukrainians that NATO would impose a no-fly zone which of course NATO leaders have firmly ruled out. But Anastasia also shared what it was like right now to have family in Russia.
4: My mom's brother lives in Russia and my my grandma's brothers and sisters, there's eight of them, they all live in Russia. Um, Like, yeah, mostly all of them live in Russia Mm -hmm. and we're not talking anymore because they think that Russia is doing well. And um, even if they are not... Like, okay with what's going on. They're not ready to speak up because they're afraid. And um, they say that they have to think about their families, which is ridiculous because if they're not talking, they're actually not saving their families. They're actually doing worse. Mm -hmm.
3: So. Meanwhile, Anastasia and Pasha have left Berlin, they went to Greece. Anastasia is still able to do her job. She works for an IT company and Pasha actually can't work right now. He used to manage marketing for a business in Ukraine.
4: The only hope is that the world will not forget about Ukraine in a few weeks because people get tired of news Mm -hmm. and, you know, for so many years it's the war in Afghanistan and Syria and it's just, you you get used to it, there is the war there. And for the first few years I'm sure that the news were devastating and now people are just, okay, This is just a part of the world what Mm -hmm. the war is.
2: So. Yeah, we should not uh, get used to things like that. Yeah. Definitely not.
1: That was Pasha and Anastasia, a Ukrainian couple from Kiev, who Monica spoke to earlier this month. Thanks for coming on, Monica. You're welcome.
0: Tearing down walls. A Sunshine Life podcast.
1: Since Russia's invasion on February 24th, an estimated 10 million people from Ukraine have been displaced. More than three and a half million refugees have fled outside the country, mostly to Poland and other EU member states, including 47-year-old Natalia. She's received assistance through Kwatira, an association of Russian-speaking LGBTQ people in Germany. Svetlana Shaitanova is the press speaker for the group, and she provided translation as Natalia described her journey out of Ukraine.
5: Uh, I left
6: Nikolaev uh, when uh, it was already heavily shelled. Uh, next to my house, uh, baking factory was demolished, and the petrol station and uh, the airport. So it was the, everything happened in
1: the first day of the war. Natalia's neighborhood was being turned to rubble, but that was far from the only thing on her mind. Natalia has stage 4 cancer, and the treatment is very costly. She said her two sons were elsewhere in the country, working and earning money for the treatment, so she was alone at home when the war began. She explained the cancer center, where she was scheduled to receive her regular infusion the next day, had also been demolished, so she knew her best option was to head west to the city of Lviv and try to get treatment there.
5: So I
6: was looking for some ways to get out, and first it didn't seem possible, I couldn't find any organization who was uh, helping people to evacuate, and I was preparing for a scenario that I had to stay there, and I was just... um, hoarding food because I I understood by then too that soon there will be no supermarkets as well, no food. So
1: I was preparing for both scenarios. Every day she went to the train and bus stations to try her luck, and eventually she did get a seat on a bus to Lviv. And before she left, she went home, gave her keys to her neighbors, and told them that they should help themselves to the food that she had so far been stockpiling. And so she finally arrived to Lviv in the very early hours of the morning.
5: And then I was, uh, we were
6: searching for uh, ways to uh, go to the border, to the Polish border. Yeah, there were huge lines, like people were uh, lining up at the train stations way out uh, in the outside. And somehow I managed to get to the border, a man helped me, and uh, there I only spent like five hours in a queue to cross the border, which is very little because many people spend days in the line.
1: But in Warsaw, in Poland, too, the lines just stretched on and the waiting lists to see doctors were very long. And what should have been her next infusion date was fast approaching. So she was advised to travel on from there to Germany, which she did, arriving here on March 8th. Now, Natalia mentioned that not speaking German or English has been difficult, and there has been a lot of back and forth about her having the right documents to get the treatment she needs.
5: Um, I revisited my values because uh,
6: before... The war started. I was so afraid of dying of cancer. I thought it was the worst what could happen to me.
5: But now I think
6: uh, the peaceful sky above my head is already ninety percent of success, and all the other problems uh, don't seem so uh, so bad.
5: Uh, yes, uh, I,
6: dying from cancer may be scary, but in Ukraine every day, uh, healthy people, healthy children die every minute under the bombing in this
5: war. So there
1: is a lot of uncertainty, as Natalia finds her bearings, and a lot of stress, too, as she is very worried about her two sons, who are 21 and 28, and are still in Ukraine. But she also told us that she's met some wonderful people along the way who have done everything they can to help cut through the red tape or translate, like Svetlana has been doing on this call. And now Svetlana has lived in Germany for the past six years, um, but she's originally from Russia. And she told us how difficult it is to discuss this all with family back at home. She said they don't believe Western media or what she is telling them. She also told us about friends in Russia who are feeling a lot of shame and despair about what's happening and others who just stay out of it because they feel they can't change anything anyway.
6: So many people are not very informed about what's happening. So many people are just very uh, angry uh, at the sanctions which were imposed by the West uh, on Russia. Uh, I mean, they're... Uh, everyday life uh, has changed, and they are feeling very mad about that. And I'm feeling mad because of the fact that that's the only thing they are feeling mad about.
1: We will be checking back in with Svetlana from Kortira and Natalia over the coming weeks to hear more about how everything's going. In the past weeks since Russia's attack on Ukraine, there has been a groundswell of support for Ukrainians. Many organizations in Germany have shifted the work they do to focus on providing aid, including the German-Polish project Kulturzug, or Culture Train. And joining me now is Artistic Director Oliver Spatz. Oliver, thanks for taking the time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: The Culture Train is a train connecting Berlin to Wrocław in Poland. It's been running since 2016, when Wrocław was named the European capital of culture. And the way it usually works is the train is essentially this vehicle for art and passengers will hear live music or there will be dance or readings happening while on the journey. But since the Russian full-scale invasion into Ukraine in late February, culture has been put on the back burner. Can you explain what you're doing now with the culture train?
0: When the war broke out, when the invasion started, uh, we were thinking, what can we do? Shall we adapt the program or something? And we have two so-called moderators uh, from Ukraine on the team since uh, about three years. Those were migrants living in Wroclaw. And they said, well, best thing would be you would bring us goods so that we can uh, support refugees in Wroclaw. And on the way back, you take refugees that don't want to stay in Wroclaw in Poland uh, to Germany so they can either stay in Germany or continue. Um, so we said, okay, <laughs> let's see. And, uh, but it was not complicated, it was, uh, you know, we had the time slots that we had anyways, the train is going Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and so we started. So that was a very different experience because the train was, let's not say empty on the way to Volkswagen, but there were only very few passengers. Of course, you know, it was beginning of March and tourism is very slow and this is our main target group usually, culture tourists, and those people are not on the train so much in winter times anyways. But on the way back, we were packed up with refugees. And this is basically women and their children. And uh, they were very happy to have the, to take this offer. And uh, we um, took about half of them to Cottbus, which is on our regular way. And uh, the other half of passengers went to Berlin. And mind you, of course, in the beginning, there was really very few infrastructure on refugee aid, um so, you know, we uh, talked to the city of Copos, and they said, we have to do something. So they installed on this very first weekend, uh, like a first aid, you know, doctors coming to the platform, uh, volunteers guiding people to places where they improvised coffee, tea, a uh, little bit of sandwiches and stuff. And um, over the last three weeks, this has really become very elaborate, very intense because uh, on the second weekend, the German rail decided to uh, uh, start this train on daily basis.
1: Can you describe what the mood, what the energy is like on the train? Because I can imagine it's a pretty stark difference to what it usually feels like
0: on these journeys. Usually this is a train full of, let's say, positive energy because people are happy to go to Capital of Culture, now we have really the opposite. This is not people voluntarily traveling to experience another city. This, these people are forced to leave their homes. So it is women, basically. It is very small luggage. Sometimes people take more luggage for a weekend on the train to spend in Warsaw than what I saw uh, on the culture train now. On the other hand, they take their animals, you know, dogs, cats, Uh, Even some guinea pigs, I saw a parrot on the train. So they take a little bit of their home with them and uh, they're full of questions how their life will continue. We, We can only really assist a little bit in terms of finding out, do they need medical aid? Do they need to catch other trains or other connections? Do they need someone to pick them up somewhere? Now, of course, it's become uh, much more organized. You know, the former airport in Berlin Tegel has been um, converted into a refugee center that's open 24/7. And that's the same in Cottbus. You know, they have opened the fairground, so people have the chance to, you know, to rest a bit, find out what the next steps will be, or maybe even decide to stay in Cottbus because a lot of these people have in mind to stay close to the Polish border or stay close to Ukrainian border to return whenever it's possible.
1: Now, it's estimated that Poland has taken in more than 2 million refugees from Ukraine. What have you witnessed at the train stations there? What, what has the response been like?
0: I was deeply, deeply impressed about the kind of collaboration between volunteers, municipal institutions and governmental or international organizations working hand in hand there together, establishing an incredible welcome desk. That's very, very impressive to see. You know, very often there's like a cliche that Polish people are uh, very good in improvising. And this is really true. They really manage to build up strong support for these people. And there's not this kind of, you know, crying out, oh, Europe has to help us. It's really they do it on their own. And they take, of course, European help. But it's not at all that they, there's any claims or so So this is really uh, impressive to, to observe.
1: Oliver Spatz is the artistic director of the Kulturzug or Train Berlin Votswaff. Thank you for taking the time today.
0: Thank you very much for um, reporting on this um, very surprising and, of course, very shocking uh, events. And uh, we are happy uh, to share these informations with you. Tearing down walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and College Radio Station WNHU eighty-eight point seven FM, out of West Haven.
1: On today's show, we're talking about Ukraine and the German and American response to Russia's invasion. Joining me now is Olena Lenon, an Eastern Ukrainian native. She's an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station, WNHU. Thank you for coming on the show today.
7: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: So here in Germany and across Europe, the Russian invasion is top of everyone's mind, with millions of Ukrainians displaced to EU countries and mass demonstrations in many European cities. How do you feel the American public is engaging in this issue?
7: Well, uh, it's very similar. You know, we're all in shock. And war coverage has definitely dominated the headlines here in the United States as well, from national to local news you know, we have seen a lot of pro-Ukraine rallies engulfing the entire world, really, and they have become a daily occurrence here in the United States as well. We also have a quite active and sizable Ukrainian diaspora here on East Coast uh, you know, between uh, New York, uh, Washington, D.C., Boston, um, there are a lot of students here, too, that are organizing uh, these rallies. So it's been quite impressive and overwhelming in many ways too as as people are responding to this to, to this horror that's unraveling in Ukraine.
1: And you're not only an expert and professor in this field, but you're also from Ukraine. What kinds of questions are your students at the University of New Haven asking you?
7: You know, my students never cease to impress me. I've had really deep conversations with my students who are, you know, 19, 20, 22-year-olds, uh, uh, who are genuinely interested in what this war will mean uh, for not just for the United States but for the people of Ukraine and and for the world? because on the most basic level, in my conversations with the students, I see that they're trying to grapple with this idea why the value of human life changes depending on uh, how, you know where the artificial border is constructed. So for example, you know NATO countries are protected by Article 5, obviously. So the the message from the Biden administration, from the United States in general, is that uh, we are committed to defending uh, NATO allies. And then as, as soon as uh, this conflict, this war spills over to a NATO territory, then we will defend human life on the NATO territory. But human life outside NATO borderline sort of matters less. And I think that, um, you know, to political scientists, uh, you know, these are perhaps norms that we discuss all the time in terms of the importance of alliances and, and sovereign borders. But to college students and aspiring professionals, uh, some of these ideas are, are really controversial in, in how we treat human life and how these artificially constructed borders and alliances determine the value of human life. And uh, to me, I've just been really inspired and impacted, and, and I've been questioning a lot of my own thinking based on how, um, you know, young Americans respond to this in the most humane ways uh, that I, I didn't even you know, expect myself.
1: And one person I'm sure that your students have become very familiar with now is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And he, of course, has been addressing parliaments and governments of several nations over the past few weeks, including the German Bundestag and, of course, the U.S. Congress. Is there something in his rhetoric or a certain message that has stood out to you?
7: Right. I even played that address in, in my classes uh, because I, I thought it was really important for them to see it. Um, but what what impressed me about Zelensky's address to U.S. Congress was um, how effectively he invoked images of Pearl Harbor and 9-11 that definitely resonate with the American public and activate those images of war and uh, terror that countries can be subjected to. But, you know, it, even though it was anticipated that Zelensky would, you know, use some of the more direct references to the times when the United States was under attack. But I think what resonated with me the most um, in Zelensky's speech is, to me, those references to Pearl Harbor and 9-11 also signaled international solidarity, because uh, the United States tried to stay out of World War II until they were attacked on their soil, and then they didn't have a choice but intervene and 9-11 was also one of the more tragic attacks on the the U.S. soil. But it also led to the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq that the United States did not fight alone. Um, You know, we shouldn't forget that the campaign uh, on decapitating Saddam Hussein's regime was also a multinational coalition of forces, not a NATO force. Some of the uh, members of the multinational coalition that fought alongside the United States were NATO members and some were not. But the bottom line here is that you know, when the united states was attacked on its soil and they responded in the way that they you know saw appropriate they did not fight their wars alone outside their sovereign territories whether it was afghanistan or iraq because the uh, the situation was not normal anymore so some of the you know when these crises happen um you know sometimes as we saw countries should be willing to to change their rules and and to to break some of the bureaucratic procedures, uh, to respond to a crisis situation appropriately, in kind and and with the um, with the right level of intensity.
1: So I have been paying very close attention to the words that you've been using because you've tweeted before that there are certain phrases that you avoid using, like moral authority, or Russia's playbook, or international community. And if you do accidentally use these words in your analysis, you'll donate to a Ukrainian charity. So these are buzzwords that we've all heard. Why do you say they're not useful?
7: So I find those words unspecific and unhelpful and sort of intellectually lazy because uh, they're catch-all phrases that remove any intellectual responsibility from uh, understanding the nuances uh, of, of those dynamics. So, for example, when we say things like international community, for example, the the, the international community, uh, you know, stands with Ukraine or, or condemns the Russian invasion. Um, but, you know, we have to realize that what, what we often mean when we say the international community must respond or the international community condemns the Russian invasion, is that we usually mean like-minded people, like-minded countries, that probably in the same sort of geographic vicinity to us. So there are a lot of countries that um, are not uh, as quick to condemn, not a lot, but uh, it's not the entire international community that has condemned uh, Russia. And then the other one that I, I try to avoid is um, you know Russia's playbook. You know, all too often I, I hear people referring to anything Russia does as Russia's playbook. So Russia does these things by, by the playbook. So um, I always you know, ask people if they see the playbook, you know, tell me where I can buy it because I have not seen the playbook. So that assumes that we already know what Russia is gonna do. We're not even gonna engage intellectually and in trying to analyze the context of the situation and specific um, strategies pursued and, and tactical choices that they make. Uh, we, just, we already know that this is the playbook and we already know what they're gonna do and we're not even gonna to listen to what they're saying because obviously they're doing things by the playbook. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And the other thing I think that it, it removes the responsibility from figuring out how to respond to Russia because you know, Russia, it's an action-reaction dynamic, right? So Russia's next move, in large part, depends on our next move. So there's no you know, preordained, Scenario there, uh, it it also a lot of how Russia responds will depend on our next move, Ukraine's next move, the EU's next move, NATO's next move. A lot of different, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces, and they all become part of the decision making calculus. So again, if we don't engage with that nuance intellectually, that then we sort of a uh, it's intellectually lazy because it removes the responsibility of figuring out how. We might have to change our own tactics and our own view of the world or Russia, for that matter, NATO, Ukraine, um, that is not by the playbook.
1: Olena Lennon is an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven. Thank you for your time.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And as a reminder, because this is such a rapidly developing situation, the interviews you heard in today's show were recorded on March 22nd and March 23rd. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Live and WNHU at the University of New Haven. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Miller-Kroll. We come out with a new episode every month. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.